I don't know about you guys. Um, how many of you guys have faced death? That's kind of what we talked about last week. Had a, a, a near-death experience. Um, I, I think about you guys, and I think, well, you guys, most of you guys grew up in the city. Eh, the city makes you soft, man. I grew up in central Wisconsin with my dad. And uh, actually, I think it was just that. It wasn't where I lived. It was who I lived with. Most of my near-death experience have come because of my dad. Uh, taking me camping, taking me hiking, taking me into this scary, scary, scary wilderness. And I think that's, that's where, and most of you guys have, many of you guys have heard some of those stories. And, um, but last, last week we talked about death is a preacher. Right? That's, that was our big idea last week. I know it was icy last week, so not everybody was here. I'll catch you up. But, but last week we talked about death. And that death actually has a message for us. And that it's actually a good thing to hear death's message. In the day, it says when we read this, uh, 714, the day of adversity is also from the hand of God as the day of prosperity. The day of death, when we are confronted and face to face with the brevity of our breath, right? Our breath of our life. Because in those days, message to us, his sermon for us. Those are meaningful days. I remember all the days of my life when I've been confronted with death. <laughs> it's, it's hard to forget them. They're, they're good days because God speaks through those days. And uh, there's a turn that happens about halfway through this chapter because one of our first and primary responses in our lives when we're faced, when we come face to face with death and his message, one of the first things that we respond with is often bargaining. That when we come face to face with death, maybe we've been, uh, uh, you know, maybe they have found a sickness in us. Uh, you know, I told you the story about camping with my dad where I had a major asthma attack and I spent all night, and I spent all night bargaining with God. You know, God, if you save me from this, I'll be a good kid. And if you save me from this, if you spare me, God. And I was spent the whole night bargaining with God. And, and for some of us, it takes that intense encounter with death, you know, that, and then we respond in, a, in an intense way with that bargaining. Others of us kind of, maybe it's not the intensity of it, but maybe that's some of our, our, our understanding of how life works. Life works where I try to be that good person. I try to be that person that has every duck in the row and, 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 and try to have every, you know, every part of my moral, you know, particulars in place. And then God will bless me. He'll give me the job that I want. He'll give me the life that I want. He'll give me the spouse that I want. He'll give me the, you know, the death that I want. We all want that kind of peaceful death where we just kind of go quietly in our sleep, don't we? And, and if I am just do everything right, God will give it to me. It's kind of this bargain that we make with him in our lives. And, and so we bargain with God. And, and, if, and if we do come across that day of adversity then, we... We not only bargain with God, if we come across those hard days or those days where we're told we have the sickness or the day that we're told we lost our job or the day that we're told we're, that person died and we're... If we're not bargaining with God, we're, 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 we're berating God, right? God, how could you let this happen to me? God, how could you let this happen to him? He was such a good person. How could you let this happen, God? 
and we berate God. And, and we kind of have this idea that spirituality is this transaction, right? Because we're used to transactions in our daily life, right? I go to the store and I want an item, I want something of value, so then I pay the price for that thing of value. I'm used to making transactions every day of my life. And what we begin, we begin to see is that we begin to think of spirituality as this kind of tr transaction. If I put my coin of the good life and the proper living in, then God will give me you know, prosperity, he'll give me joy, he'll give me that spouse, and he'll give me health all my days. And we think of spirituality as a transaction. And this perspective of spirituality as a transaction, as a trade-off, if you lived in the Old Testament, if you lived in Solomon's time, there might have been some justification for why you thought that way. Because when you read through the Old Testament on a surface level, what you see is you, you'll see passages like this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.1. And, and, and you can find passages like this all through the book of Deuteronomy. Where, where the Lord says, now this is the commandment. Here's the statutes and the rules that the Lord God commanded me to teach you. So this is Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord. These are the statutes, the rules the Lord God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons, and by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we, might, we read passages like that, or we could read passages like that, and we could understand that maybe, maybe our relationship with God is transactional. That if we do all the things that the Lord has told us to do, we will get long life, prosperity, health, and, and milk and honey. And who doesn't want milk and honey? At least it's good in the coffee, right? Like milk and honey, that sounds great. Well, before we actually get back into Ecclesiastes, I, I want to kind of just show you a couple things about He's going to demolish this idea in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But I want to give you some suggestions even before we get to that. The first, the first thing that's really important is to distinguish between your individual life and this promise, like in Deuteronomy, that God was given to the community of Israel. Okay, you individually are not Israel the community. I think it's important to understand the difference between God speaking to his people, the nation of Israel, where he was promising a covenantal community blessing or cursing, based upon the community's keeping of his word and his ways. Right? It doesn't say, listen up, Bob. It says, hear, O Israel. Okay, so one of the things as you're reading the Old Testament, you see some of this transactional understanding, is you have to understand that there was a covenant given to the nation Israel, whereby God had spoken to them that if they keep the covenant, it will go well with them in the land. Okay, so we don't necessarily want to read the Old Testament where we're applying all the community promises to myself as an individual. It's not who it was addressed to. Secondly, I, I think it's important that there's a general way in which this is true. Right? In, in the book of Proverbs, for example, it speaks that if we're walking in God's ways, we will generally experience measures of prosperity and blessing and health. And, and this makes sense in this idea of, of Proverbs if you think about it, think about wherever Judaism and Christianity has spread. We believe that God has revealed himself and has spoken to us and has given us the scriptures. So wherever Judaism and Christianity has spread, people 
are motivated to be able to read the scriptures, which means they educate themselves. They become literate so they can read the scriptures. If, you become, if you're seeking to become literate, you establish systems of education. If you establish systems of education, you generally will grow and prosper in your knowledge and wisdom. And so that, that seems to make sense. The Protestant work ethic in general, or in particular, which values hard work and responsibility and frugality. So wherever the Protestant work ethic, wherever the Protestantism had spread around the globe, we generally see those countries actually 150 years later actually prospering to a degree because they were taught values and virtues. If, you know, the, the richest, do you know where the richest area of Canada is? Per capita, has more per capita millionaires than anywhere else in Canada. Do you know where it is? It's, it's Steinbach, Manitoba. Because we live by Steinbach, and this is how I know it, because I live by Steinbach, Manitoba. Why is Steinbach, Manitoba the richest place in Canada? It's because you had all these Mennonites there that were taught they should work hard, they should educate themselves so they could read the scriptures to their family, they should work really hard with their hands, and they should never spend a dime. That was what they were taught. And the, the, the Mennonites are still, to this day, considered like the cheapest people you'll meet. Like They're, they're not going to spend a dime, right? Like, I got my pierogies and that's all I need. Ben Clausen, right? And, um, and so in, in a general way, if you're working hard and saving hard, living right, you know, not going after drugs and alcohol, not living right, and following the virtues that Christianity has exposed, in, in a general way, you, your people and you will, will prosper. In a general way. And that's what the book of Proverbs is about. But lest we think that the collective sense of speaking to general sense means that every single person will live a virtual virt, uh, every single person who lives a virtuous life will be prosperous there's entire books of the bible trying to dispel us from the notion that if you live a righteous life you will be blessed right job that's the entire point of the book of job here's job and he's known as a blameless man in his generation and the worst things are happening to him and his friends are coming up to him saying Job, look at your life. All this stuff is happening to you. It must be because you've got some. Job's like, I don't know of anything. And they're like, but this is true. If you live a virtual life, you will be blessed. And the whole book of Job is written to, 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 to destroy that notion. And so actually here, Solomon's, where he starts this discussion on, on the value of a righteous life, he starts by kind of, this is kind of an encapsulation of, this could be of the book of Job in a sense. He says, I have, in my vain life I've seen everything. I've seen it all. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And so he, from the beginning, by kind of shocking us out of our system, that we can bargain with God. That it doesn't matter how good we present ourselves to be, God is not a God to be paid off or bargained with. We can't Solomon's whole point in this whole book is there is nothing that we can do in this breath of our life to escape the fleeting quality, the fleeting and the perplexing quality of this breath that we live. And so what Solomon does in this chapter is he wants to talk about righteousness and false righteousness. And he's going to do this by introducing us to three ways to live. Three ways of living. Okay? There are three ways to live. 
this is in verses 16 and 18. So kind of follow along in verses 16 and 18 because I'm going to put some pictures up on the board or on the board on the screen for you, okay? So verses 16 and 18, we're going we're gonna to be introduced to two ways to live and then the third one's going to emerge, okay? The first way to, uh, to life is the way of life that we'll call Homer, okay? The Homer way of life. The first way that he describes is that of a fool who chases after folly and lives to indulge themselves. Okay? That's one way. It's one way of life. Just this fool who chases after the moment, chases after whatever his, you know, primal urges of the time are, just living to indulge himself, the fool. And this fool has a motto. Okay? This fool has a motto. And the fool's motto is this. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Yeah, have you heard people <laughs> who are like, you know, they're living for the moment, they're living to indulge, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, will give them pleasure in the moment. And their motto is, you know, why would you destroy yourself in being overly righteous and being overly wise? Why destroy yourself? And there's the other way of life. The second way is the, that of, now I got, we'll call this the Ned way. Uh, and I know, so I'm not actually using these characters from The Simpsons. Because <laughs> I think Ned's a pretty good guy in The Simpsons, I don't know. But, but I'm, I'm giving them as a caricature, okay? So understand that. So you have the Ned way, and, and the Ned way, I think, we can understand the Ned way is the self-righteous nitpicker who is wise in his own eyes. Right? The Ned, the Ned way, the self-righteous nitpicker who's right in his own eyes, who's, who's looking, always looking at the lives of others and kind of looking and judging them and judging himself by his own standards. And the Ned, Ned, the Ned way would have a motto. The Ned way would be, the motto of the Nedway would be, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before it's time? This kind of makes sense to us. Like, if you live a life on the edge, some point you're going to fall off of it. So, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So we got this, these two guys and their two ways of life and their two models kind of crashing into each other. Who's right? Do you live for the moment? Do you live to indulge yourself? Do you live seeking after pleasure? Because after all, you're going to die someday. You might as well enjoy it now. Or do you realize that the person who lives life on the edge is going to drop off of it? And what Solomon does is he actually says, well, they're both, in a sense, right. We're going to look at why he says this. But he actually says in verse 18, it's good that you should take hold of this, the, this lesson, and then he says, and from that not, with, with, not withhold your hand. And then he says, the one who fears God will come out from them both. But there's another guy in the scenario. There's another way to live in the scenario. The one who fears God. And if you know the end of the book, the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is actually the conclusion of the matter he comes to. Fear God. Fear God. And, and the assumption here is that neither Ned or Homer is actually fearing God. And, and he's going to explain why as we go through. Okay? 
So that's how he, he sets this up. Solomon concedes that Ned has a point. It's, it's good that you should take hold of it. That, that Ned is right. Wickedness and folly can lead to destruction and early death. And so, yes, it's wise for us to hold on to his wisdom. But to our surprise, Solomon also concedes that Homer's point has, there's a, there's a validity to Homer's point too, that self-righteousness and smugness can destroy us as well. And we're going to look at it a little bit. Fear God is his conclusion. Now, this makes sense to us. It would make sense to us to reject Homer's way. In fact, as religious people, we're, we're all here on church on a Sunday morning, as religious people, it would make sense for us to say, yeah, Homer's wrong. Of course we're supposed to reject the folly of wickedness and, and foolishness. But it might surprise us that we're not kind of endorsing Ned's way either. And for the rest of this chapter, Solomon speaks, and he's actually going to direct most of his attention to, to why Ned's way is wrong, to why Ned's way is wrong. And the big idea point is this, that while it is appropriate for the one who fears God to seek the righteous life that Scripture calls us to, there's a self-righteousness. There's a wisdom that is right in our own eyes. Right? This idea of too wise means too wise in your own eyes. It's a reflexive pronoun in, in Hebrew. It's just as dangerous to think that we have arrived, that we've attained the righteous life that Scripture calls us toward. Because, I'll tell you what, the Neds of this world can mistake their need and miss their need for a Savior. The Neds of this world who have it all together are actually in a dangerous place. Think about this. Let, let's say you've got a rebellious person who's, who's deathly internally sick. And they go to the doctor. And the doctor says, this is how you can get well. And the rebellious person who's in its nature to be rebellious says, I do not listen to you. I defy you. I'm living my life and I'm living it my own way. And he walks out the door not taking the medicine. Okay? Now think of the other person, the Ned person, who walks into the doctor. The doctor looks at him and says, you have this terminal illness. You need to take this medicine. And the Neds of the world say, I'm not sick. I feel great. I don't need a doctor. And he walks out the door without taking the medicine that the doctor's prescribing. Right? Does it, does it really, like, who, who's better off? Neither of them are better off. Neither of them listened to the doctor. Whether, whether they rejected the medicine out of their rebellion or they rejected their medicine out of their belief that they needed it not, it doesn't matter what their motive was for rejecting the medicine. Neither one of them listened to the doctor, respected the doctor, or trusted the doctor. And that's what Solomon is speaking about. And he's going to speak now to the righteous person. This, is, this was Jesus' frustration. Jesus' frustration in Matthew 10. Jesus is reclining at a house and many tax collector sinners were, were coming and reclining and eating with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Those who know they need the doctor. 
And, and this is where Solomon introduces this third way of living. The one who fears God shall come out from among them. And the rest of the chapter is pointed at the good people, the Neds. Because Solomon takes the rest of this chapter convincing the good people that they need a Savior. That's what he does. And, and listen, in a church service like this, where you come in this morning, many of you, many of you, I'm not going to speak to those who already are fearing God. We'll, we'll get to you at the end. Who already know and acknowledge how you fall short of the glory of God and have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Like for you, I'm going to put you aside for a moment. I'm not speaking to you as much today. Although there, there's things that I'll say that, that still speak to us daily as Christians. But I am speaking to you who are here today, who maybe you were brought up in church, maybe it's your habit to come, and you've never confronted the true, most dangerous part of your heart and of your life, which is that we all have fallen sin short of the glory of God. And we all are hopelessly trapped in our sins and we need a savior to you the religious person that's who i'm speaking today solomon turns his attention to the religious person to the righteous the righteous person and what he what he he makes one big point and then he uses a number of proverbs to bring it out his one big point he brings it is that though wisdom though wisdom can strengthen us for life wisdom is a great thing it can strengthen us for life our righteousness cannot save us. He, he, he says, wisdom, in verse 19, he says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Your wisdom can get you far in this life, and your wisdom can set you apart from other people in this life. Wisdom can get you far. It can do far more to strengthen you than ten wise men who are in the city. Ten rulers who are in the city. However, 20 is a, is a verse that comes and falls right behind it. However, surely there is not one righteous man. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never See how he's using these proverbs? It's, it's to make us reflect on this, to think of the connection between these two seemingly unrelated things. And he, and he says, listen, your wisdom can get you strong. It can make you successful. Your wisdom can make you prosperous. But don't think it is going to impress. Don't think that your righteousness is going to impress God. It's not going to. And if you don't believe me, and if you don't believe Solomon, he gives three tests in, in the form of other Proverbs. He gives, us, he gives us three tests. Let's look at these tests and see how we're doing. Okay, his first test is this. Don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Here, here's his first test. How do you respond to when people slander you and curse you? Do you get angry? Do you get upset? Do you want to strike out? Do you want to spread lies and rumors about them? Do you want to get them back? How do you respond when people are speaking ill of you? And then he says, all right, now look at your own words. Look at your own mouth. Look at how you've spoken others. How dare they say that about you? Well, what did you say about them last week? What have you cursed them in your bed at night? Right? So, 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 test of, I, found, I have not found one man, one righteous man who always does good and never sins. First thing is look at your words. Look at how you've spoken of others. Are you blameless? You hear somebody slandering you, speaking bad about you, 
and you want to pick up your stone and stone them? How, how have you spoken of others? You know, the Apostle James says no one can tame the tongue. The tongue is a fire. It's a wildfire. So how, 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 how have you been speaking about others? First thing, your words. Second, test your understanding. Solomon says, I've tested all these things by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been as far off and very, very deep. Who can find it out? Now Solomon had this reputation of being the wisest person who'd ever lived, the wisest person of his days. And Solomon is saying, listen, for all of my wisdom and for all of my energy that I put into this exploration of all things, I came to the end of myself. I could not figure everything out. Everything was so deep to me. And the idea uh, that this should um, get through to us as his readers those who he's trying to speak to is, listen, I, I won't claim to be as wise as, as Solomon, and if he hasn't figured this all out, how, how, however could I claim to have figured life out? In fact, this is the answer that kind of comes at the end of Job. At the end of Job, right, you have, you have all these friends kind of trying to counsel Job, and they're really doing a terrible job at counseling Job, and some, some bad things have happened to Job, and Job's trying to just figure out, God, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? And his friend said, you sinned. You, did, you, did, you must have sinned in order to deserve this. And Job's like, I don't think I have. In the end, as it gets to the end of the book, God's answer, in a, in, in a sense, in the book of Job is, who is this that dares darken my counsel with his lack of knowledge? And Job begins to speak to him. Hey, Job, tell me about this. Job, tell me. Just, just for a moment. Let's, let's see the extent of your wisdom, Job. Let's see the extent, the breadth of your understanding, Job. Uh, were you there when I formed the heavens and the earth? Do you know, you know, he, he, all these examples from nature, one of the things he says, has, have you probed the depths of the oceans? We are literally 4,000 years after Job's time and we still have not probed the depths of the oceans. And God's point is, if you haven't probed the depths of the oceans, Job, if you haven't, if, if your mastery of knowledge and understanding has not been applied to the entirety of the physical realm, how in the world do you think you could stand before God spiritual? That's Job. That, that's Job. If, you haven't, if, you haven't, if, you're, if you've reached the end of your limit when talking about the physical world and its, and its uh, properties... Who are we to bargain with and berate God? And so the second test is, so the first test is your words. You've fallen short in your words. Your second test is your wisdom. You've fallen short in your wisdom. The third test is resistance of temptation. Your resistance, your ability to resist temptation. Solomon says, I turn my heart to to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that's madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart snares is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Solomon's final reflection here is on the difficulty of resisting temptation. Like in the wisdom literature, I don't think he's talking about a specific woman here. In the wisdom literature, like in the book of Proverbs, Solomon often uses this idea of the temptress to, to, to embody this whole idea of temptation. 
And, and, and it makes sense as to why, why maybe Solomon did this. It kind of was, it kind of did lead to Solomon's downfall. All the, all the foreign women he was, uh, uh, had the reputation of having and chasing, uh, chasing after the wind. But Solomon's point is this. Is there any of us? I mean, it's not, it's not just that, you know, we have fallen to this particular temptation. Is there any of us who has gone through life with the ability to resist temptation? Now, the one who pleased God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. But I think Solomon's point for all of these points is there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So if there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, that means that none of us, no one, has been able to escape the snare. Our resistance, no matter how godly and how good you project yourself to be, no matter how you dress yourself up when you come to church on Sunday, our resistance has failed. Our words have shocked And our wisdom has come to its end. And so if we're presenting ourselves like Neds when we are actually homers, what are we? We're not the ones who fears God. We are the word hypocrites. That's the word. Presenting ourselves like Neds when we're actually homers. That's that's Solomon's point, is that none of us are actually Neds. You can dress up like Ned. You can look like Ned. You can say, hi, diddly-ho, neighbor, like Ned. But you're not Ned. We're all Homer. And that's his point. And the one who fear God will come out from among them. And so here's the conclusion. Solomon's conclusion is this. Behold, this sound, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has thought, sought repeatedly, but I haven't found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. Here, here's one thing I just want to say about Solomon and about this book of Ecclesiastes. So many people come to this book of Ecclesiastes and don't think that Solomon really has a deep understanding of the gospel. As I've been preaching through and studying this book, I, I, I'm blown away by that understanding and that misrepresentation of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon knows exactly what he's doing. He's the greatest preacher. He's called the preacher for a reason. Solomon knows exactly what he's doing, and he says, this is what I have concluded. God made humankind completely perfect and upright and upstanding. On the seventh day, or on the sixth day, he created humankind, and he said, behold, it is all good of all that he has made. Solomon knows the biblical story. He knows the storyline of redemption. He knows that God had created upright, and yet we, in our own sin, in our own rebellion, turned away from God's hand. Solomon knows this, that that God created mankind upright and we have sought out many schemes. Solomon is not saying anything different than what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, where he says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to our own way. He's not saying anything different than the the verse that changed my heart. The verse that when I first heard it when I was a 16-year-old high school student was the verse that started me on this journey of seeking God and understanding who he is and what he had done for me in Christ. Romans 3.23, can you say it with me if you know it? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are Neds, all of us are Homers. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God made mankind upright, and yet we have all turned to our own schemes, our own devices. So, so to put it bluntly, when he says to come out from Hober, and he says the one God will come out of them both, what he is actually saying is the one who fears God is the one who knows his heart. He knows that there is a God who has created him. He knows that he has turned away from this God who has created him, his own rebellion, turned away to his own devices. The one who knows his heart is the one who fears God because the one who knows his heart knows he is worthy of the condemnation of the justice of God. The one who knows his heart knows that woe is me for I am ruined. Like, like Isaiah said when he came into the Lord's presence, woe is me for I am ruined because I come from a people of unclean lips and I am a man of unclean lips and I have come and I have seen the glory of the Lord God of Israel. I'm ruined. I'm not Ned. The one who fear God knows his rebellion heart. And, and I want to show you something here because the, the question is, who is this one man? Right, you see that? The one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. Is Solomon saying that men are more righteous than women? Is that what it is? There, there's some, yeah, some, right. This is not where I should get the amens, okay? Right. Um, <laughs> But some interpreters, actually some readers of, of, of say, look at this is Solomon's misogyny, what he's doing here. This is an example of the, the misogyny of the Bible, what, what Solomon's doing here. Uh, I, I've read some articles this week that, that spoke to that. Uh, others uh, think that Solomon is just merely recording his experience. That, that Solomon's just saying, this is what I've found. I, I found some good guys, not many. I haven't found really any good women, but I mean... Look at the women Solomon was consorting with, and maybe that, some people think that that's, maybe it's just Solomon in his experience hasn't found an upright woman, a righteous woman. I, I think the best understanding of this passage is trying to understand, just if we understand, if we believe that Solomon actually understood the storyline of Scripture, that, and, and I think he does, because he said God made mankind upright and we have sought out others, you know, our, our own schemes. And, and I've said this, this, Solomon is familiar with the revelation and, uh, of God and the story of redemption. And if Solomon is familiar with that story of redemption, then Solomon knows that God has promised a Messiah, that God has promised a deliverer. Solomon knows that God has promised that Messiah will come and he will bring in a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and truth. Solomon knows that it will come even from his own line. He is, Solomon is of the house and lineage of David. And, and, and there's been a promise that of the house and lineage of David, there will become one of his people in righteousness. And so Solomon, understanding the storyline of redemption in the Bible, I don't think he could make a statement to say, Every single person in, hu in human history will, no one will be righteous because he knows that the righteous one will come. The understanding of what Solomon is doing here, I believe, is he's pointing us to who, he's, he's causing us to ask this question, who is this righteous man? Who could it possibly be? I, I love what, how com commentator John Gill writes, by this one of a thousand is meant the Messiah, the wisdom of God. 
This is who Solomon sought for and who now he says he found. To whom he looked for peace, pardon, and atonement under a sense of his sins. He who is the messenger, an interpreter, one among a thousand, yes, who is the chiefest among ten thousands, who is superior to angels and men in the dignity of his person, in the perfection, purity, and holiness of his nature, in the excellency of his names, in his offices and his relations, in his concern in the affairs of grace and salvation, and he who is to be found by every truly wise and gracious soul that seeks him early and earnestly. The Messiah, the man, Jesus Christ. I believe this is who Solomon is speaking to, or at least pointing to by the Holy Spirit when he says, one man I have found. So what does this mean? What this means, what Solomon is trying to press him through this whole chapter is this. You cannot trust in your goodness to save. Remember, he started out this chapter with the sermon of death. Death's sermon to us. That, that, and I said last week, when, when you are confronted with the sermon of death, either run away to escapism or you can face and that hell is hot. You can face the eternity of our, uh, you can face the own hearts that all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that none of us is righteous, no, not even one. You can, you, can, you can then either reject the medicine because you're a rebel or you can reject the medicine because you don't think you need it. But the one who fears God will come out from both. I don't do this often, but I, I really want to do this today. If you are here today and you do not yet know Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that there is a day in which you must come face to face with your need for a Savior and come face to face with your Savior. And I will plead with you that today would be that day. That today would be the day that you stop running away, that you stop rejecting, you stop rebelling Him, you stop thinking you don't Him. And that would be the day where you recognize and acknowledge the sinfulness of your own heart. That when you look at your words, when you look at your wisdom, and when you look at your ability to resist temptation, you realize and recognize this about yourself. I am not Ned Flanders. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. That was the difference in my life when I was 16 years old. It was the difference between recognizing that I just needed to, to clean myself up a little bit and becoming face-to-face -face with the confronting reality that I needed a Savior and that God had provided one in Jesus Christ, His Son, because He loved us. Because He loved us. If you're here today and that's you, I pray today you will come. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. Confess your sin to Him. That means agree with God that his diagnosis of your heart is true, that you need a Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Say, Lord, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Forgive me of my sin. Ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sin, and to lead you in the life everlasting. Today. Now, if that's you and that you, if that's you and you have already done that, 
I want to I I just exalt for a moment the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that God has provided a way for us through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, through the work of Jesus Christ. He's offering forgiveness of sins in his name to people unworthy of it. What this means is that if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've received the redemption that is offered in Jesus Christ, you can rest in him. It's not that he has said, here's Jesus, now be perfect. It's that he said, you were dead and here is life. And this life is in my son. And walk in his ways and rest in his grace. There's no one who does good and never sins. That doesn't mean we throw it away. Solomon says, grasp the one and don't let go of the other. (laughs) Right? Grasp the one and don't let go of the other. And rest in the grace of God. I know some of you, you you continually, even after coming to Christ, you find it difficult to rest in His grace and in the grace of the Savior. The point of Solomon is, the one who fears God rests in Him.